Let's take our Bibles. Let's head over to Mark, the Gospel of Mark, as we continue paragraph by paragraph through the Gospel of Mark. And let's, uh, let's head over to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, the very last few verses of Mark chapter 4. Let me ask you a question while you're turning there. When you were a kid, what kind of things scared you? Besides your mom and dad, what kind of things scared you? Spiders. Spiders? They still do. <laughs> Some of us don't outgrow our childhood fears. Anything else that you were afraid of? What's that? Clowns? Yeah, I think there's a whole lot of that. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Anything that went thump in the bump of the night? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that is terrible. They would eat the food before you, or the sweet stuff we had of time. I, we had the thing that I loved. I love scary movies. I don't know about you know, why my parents kept on letting us do it. But I love scary movies. And the other thing that then would drive me nuts, I'd watch the scary movies. And then to go down in our basement, we always had those stairs that had the openings between the steps. And, am I the only one, not the only one? What did you expect when you went down in the basement? There's going to be a hand grab you. Something you know, is going to bite you, eat you, or grab you and pull you down. And so this going down to the, to the basement, in the, you know, I was always a real fast down, real fast up, just because of scary things like that. What scares people when they're adults? Or we don't have any fears? We're scared of what? Kids? <laughs> Anything? What's that? Yeah, does it scare us at times? Yeah, anything else? Snakes. Snakes, okay. Some critters still scare us, right? But now that we've gotten a little bit more mature, some other things scare us. Some things scare us like layoffs, recessions, terrorists, storms, even something, I don't mean to be silly, but, you know, moles that change colors. You know, skin cancers, diseases, going to the doctor. We get scared of bank accounts getting a little bit low. We get scared when we hear the, not the thump in the night, but when we hear the thump, thump, thump coming from the engine of the car. We get scared because it might be something serious. Do uh, adults ever get fearful of being lonely? Yeah. Do we ever get fearful? For, you said, in a, in a joking sense, do we ever fear for our kids as we get older? Our fears don't go away. They stick with us. And at times they are, you know, let's, let's answer this question. Can fears be healthy? Is there any type of good fears to have? Like what? When? Yeah, seriously. We should be afraid of certain things that could cause us danger. I don't know, but any of you been to Grand Canyon? Okay. And the Grand Canyon amazes me that here in America, you can walk right up to something like that, and you can look down over. Now, me, I didn't walk up and look down over. I stayed several feet back because I have this fear in my mind that if you get too close, the edge is going to break off. Is that a healthy fear, to stay away from something dangerous? Is it a healthy fear that keeps you from driving crazy at times? <laughs> Some of you, it doesn't help. Okay. Is it a healthy fear at times to say, okay, um, I'm going to stay away from some of those things that could create some harm in my life? 
by making some lifestyle choices that could bring serious harm into our lives or into our relationship. Those are healthy fears. When does fear become unhealthy? By illustration or by application, when, when is a fear not a good one? Okay, if it preoccupies us to the point that we are given over to anxieties and worry, Jesus said in Matthew 6 that we shouldn't be that way, when else can it be, become bad? Go ahead. Okay. Can we, do you have an illustration or should I throw one? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Being, af- being afraid of rejection, can that, can that paralyze a Christian from serving the Lord? Okay, let, let, let's do a fear that most all of us have. We are afraid at times to share the gospel because we're not sure how they're going to respond to it. Okay, could that fear keep us from sharing the gospel? For some of us, it has at times, right? Could, um, let's take a situation, that, that real-life situation for some people. Could a young person fear that they will not find a spouse? And as a result, because of the pressure that somebody's paying interest and attention to them, and fear that this person may stop being interested in them, could it cause them to become immoral? and to go all the way with somebody because they're afraid of a response. That's legitimate. That, that's not a, it's, it's a legitimate illustration, but of a bad reaction to fear. Could somebody, could somebody fear that um, they could get into trouble so they lie and cover their tracks and start living a life of deceit? Sure. All those things are real. Okay, so we, we have some legitimate fears. We have some not-so-good fears. But what happens when Jesus is preaching is it's interesting that in Jesus' ministry, just to throw st- some stats out, the, it is estimated that Jesus gave 125, some will go one or two the other way, well, about 125 imperative commands that he spoke during his earthly ministry. That's quite a few different commands. You know, forgive others, love others, pray, um, you know, be charitable. The, the command that shows up 21 times out of those 125 has to do with stop fearing, fear not, be of good courage. 21 out of the 125 commands that he gives has to do with not being fearful. It's interesting that the next the next closest in number of commands is love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, thy mind, and your neighbor as yourself. That occurs eight times. So in those 125 commands, the second most command repeated is eight times, but the most common is the having to do with fear. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Be of good courage. One of the times it shows up is in Mark chapter 4. 
In Mark chapter 4, he is ministering in an unusual way. He's going to be ministering. As we said last week, there's a shift in his ministry. That what happened in chapter 3 is he's starting to shift now. That what happens shortly thereafter is he's going to start focusing in the second half of his ministry upon his disciples, preparing them, dealing with them. Now, he's still going to do some public ministries, as we're going to see in chapter 5, chapter 6, all the way up through chapter 8. But the bulk of this time is going to be spent where he's going to do a lot of one-on-one. 12 teachings, small group training, and getting them prepared. Well, one of the small group times happens in Mark chapter 4, starting with verse 35. The setting of it is interesting. What happens is there's been a busy, busy day of ministry. If you compare this chapter with Matthew chapter 8, this is one of the busiest days of Jesus' Galilean ministry. This is the end of that day after he's done miracles and he's done a lot of different things. And it starts in Mark chapter 4, verse 35, the same day when evening was come. In Matthew, it says, they sent away, they chased away, literally, the multitudes of people who were still crowding him. He needed a break. They needed to get away. And Jesus says to the twelve, let us pass over onto the other side. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him, even as he was in the ship. And there was also with them other little ships. The other gospels don't record that there was other little ships, or there was a flotilla that came with them as they crossed here the red, the Sea of Galilee headed over towards the other side, towards Gergenes or Gadarenes, which we'll see in the next chapter. And it says that as they were going across at night, there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. And he was in the back part of the ship, asleep on a pillow, and they woke him, and they said unto him, Master, carest not thou not that we perish? He arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. Then he says unto them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? And so what you have in this setting is Jesus is going across. The twelve are basically with him. Others are following in other boats. And, And we have to pause before we go any further. Let me do what I said last week. There are people who reject this account. They look at it and say, Impossible. There's a miracle. We can't believe this account. It is written... uh later on by his disciples who are embellishing the event and they're telling about Jesus making him so heroic and uh, they're going to present everything in a, in a very um, fictitious fashion because they're, they're make, making up this story. This is all you know, mythical. It's interesting, again, let me remind you like I did last week, the detail that the authors put into this, the details that they give us the time of the day, the details and the specificity that they give when it says that he had a pillow, the details that there's other boats. It's amazing that in this account, not only are they focused on details, if this is exaggerated, if this is made make-believe, how come with all those small details, Matthew agrees, Mark agrees, and Luke agrees, even though we know that they wrote at different times from different regions, but they have the details the same. As well, the thought occurs to me that there was multiple witnesses to this. There was many eyewitnesses. How do we know that? It's just not the 12, but they already said there was others who were going across the sea with them. So people could have discounted this story if that were the case. 
But one thing that strikes me again in this text, like we mentioned last week, if this is written by disciples who were trying to pull the wool over people's eyes, by individuals who uh, were trying to fabricate a story, when you're fabricating a story or you're making a story about an event that you were involved in, the typical pattern of writing a story to make something to be acceptable, something to be um, impressive to other people, is to give a narration where the characters appear, the good guys, appear as heroic. They appear great. How, does, how do they pre- present themselves? Do, they, do the disciples present themselves in a heroic manner, or do they present themselves as individuals with a lot of flawed faith? It's the flawed faith, right? So here you have a story that is absolutely true. And in the story, it's giving us some information about Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot of different, different uh, lessons that can be drawn. Let me, let me give you one lesson. That one author, in writing about this story, he said that this is the main lesson of this story. Tell me what is wrong with his proposition, his theme from the story. He put it this way. This story teaches us God calms the storms in our lives whenever we turn to him in faith. Why is that an erroneous lesson to draw from this account? Number one, they didn't turn to him in faith. Okay, He rebukes them because of their little faith, their lack of faith. So that, that drawing from this story is taking from an erroneous point of view. Let me, let me ask you the second, the second part of that. Okay, Does God calm every storm in our life? No. No. Do you, uh, do you know of people who are still going through storms of illness who are believers and God hasn't calmed it yet? Do you know believers who are going through stormy marriages and God hasn't healed it at this point? But they're turning to him in faith and saying, help me, help me to deal with this. Do you know individuals who are going through the storm of financial problems and they're trying to trust the Lord and he still hasn't calmed the storm? Okay, they, that, that would be a feel-good message, but it's not an accurate message. Let's do an accurate uh, drawing out of some lessons. Let's, let's make three of them. Three lessons that will lead us to a bigger conclusion. Three lessons that are totally, purely come right out of the text. Number one is this. Okay, in God's will, there are storms. Okay, in God's will, there are storms. Let, let's lay out the scene, okay? What you have in this case is you have the disciples ministering with Jesus. They get into a boat, and they're going to go out in through the Sea of Galilee, D- Galilee during the night, and they're going to run into the storm. Question, why are they in the boat in the middle of the night in the Sea of Galilee? In or out of the will of God? And how do you know? Were they in the will of God or out of the will of God? I'm going to say they're in. Okay, how, how come we can say that? With confidence, how can we say these guys were in God's will? Jesus said to them, let us go. They followed him into the boat. Okay, so in God's will, which was let's get to the other side, he made it clear to them they are traveling. Now, we don't know how long they're going through this, the sea, we don't know how many hours passed, but all of a sudden we know that as they're doing the will of God and they're traveling to the other side to minister to with the maniac of the Gadarenes, they'll find that out in the next morning. As they're traveling, this storm comes. What do you know about the storm? 
Just with what we read a moment ago, what, what words would you describe the storm with? What did you say, Jay? How come? Okay. It's a, it's a really strong, severe storm for several reasons. The boat is filled with water. Any other phrases catch your attention? Violent. Violent, yeah. Anything else? What else is in that same verse where it says that the boats are filled with water? What else does it say? Okay, the winds. The word that is used here for winds is seismos. Does it sound like a climatology ver, uh, word? Okay. It is the idea that they would use for something that would be violent, something that was hurricane force. This wasn't your typical storm that came to the Sea of Galilee. Mark wants us to understand, and Matthew adds to it as well, that this was an unusually violent, windy storm. And it talks about how it's in that verse, what is it, verse 38, that, or verse 37. The waves beat, into, beat the ship, that it was now becoming full, this great storm of wind. You also know it was so bad that what was the reaction of the, fisher, of the men who were in the boat? What's that? Okay, they're thinking they're going to die. Okay, and remind yourselves, of the 12 who were in the boat, the majority of them, what was their livelihood, their profession? Okay, they've fished, they've been on this sea, and the storm of this sea is scaring even the veteran fishermen, that they don't know what's going on. You know what's interesting, just as an aside, how do they approach Jesus? Are they respectful when they talk to Jesus? Now remember, Jesus is sound asleep in the backside of the boat. When they approach Jesus, do they speak respectfully to him? It, initially they do. Because what, what do they say? They say, Master. Okay, so, and if you read the other accounts, they say, Lord, Teacher, or Master. So they speak respectfully, but then does it go downhill real quickly? Okay? Isn't this amazing what, what fear can do? Fear can cause us to become harsh with other people become accusing towards other people, to start questioning other people. What do they question about Jesus? Yeah, yeah, right? They say, Lord, don't you, don't you care? You're being indifferent. God, if you really loved me, you wouldn't have allowed this to happen to me. Now, none of us would ever say that. <laughs> none of us would ever think that. But we know better than that. And so here's these men, they're scared, and as a result of their fear taking over, they're starting to react, and they're getting frustrated, they're getting upset. I can't imagine what they were saying to one another before they woke up Jesus. But in this storm that's coming, it's really sudden. Somebody mentioned that as well, that the indication of the text is all of a sudden this storm arose. It is the idea, very sudden, very severe. And as a result, they they're find themselves in this serious problem. But let me throw this out. Did Jesus know about the storm? Okay, did he know ahead of time? Absolutely, the Lord knows all about it. And so here Jesus, who is not caught off guard, he is sleeping in the boat, and this storm is real bad. And in God's will, Jesus, who is with them, is allowing them to experience this severe, life-threatening storm. Does God ever allow us to go through trials that feel life-threatening, that feel overwhelming? In our grief share, it's amazing over the last two weeks just listening to some people sharing some of their experiences that has been very, 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 very helpful to understand what some of you have gone through. And several of them made the comment that they have never knew hurt. They never knew pain until they lost a loved one. 
lost a child, lost a spouse, lost that individual, and feeling a desperate, a desperate type of loneliness, a desperation of just going to the Lord. And though I know, Lord, you care, I know you love me, Lord, I don't know what to do. Have some of you ever been through a storm? Some of you have. That has caused you to just say, this is the most horrible thing that can happen, and I have felt so weak, so desperate, so empty of myself, so overwhelmed. And that's what this text is telling us, that it is possible. God does this. John chapter 11. He says, I allowed death to come into the home for your benefit, he tells the disciples, so that you might grow in faith. He writes in Philippians chapter 1, Paul writes, he says that God allowed me to be put in prison to lose my freedom for the furtherance of the gospel. We read that God at times in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 says, Paul writes and he says, God allowed me to suffer severe physical trauma. Why? So that I would not become proud anymore. And I'd stop thinking about what I've accomplished and realize that when I am weak, then I become strong. We read in James chapter 1 that God sometimes allows the trials of different flavors and of different appearances to come into our life so that he can build patience in our life. And with patience, maturity. Yeah, the fact of the matter is that in God's will there are storms. And if we don't understand that, my oh my, we can be in some serious hurt. Let me see if I can put it this way. If we as Christians believe that as long as I'm serving God, God will keep me from all harm and will make sure my life is comfortable, then all of a sudden when trials and tribulations come, when storms come, usually there's one of two reactions, and both of them are terrible reactions. One is unwarranted guilt. Well, all of a sudden the person who says, hey, I'm, I'm, you know, as long as I love the Lord, I'll never have any problems. Well, then the problems mean something must be wrong with their life. They must have done something wrong. And so that individual is just going through their life, ripping apart every nook and cranny of their spirit to find out what did they do wrong. Or, or the other bad reaction can be this, is if you don't look at yourself and say, I must have failed, who would they look at and say failed? God himself. God didn't keep his word. God didn't fulfill his promise. But that's all based upon an unwarranted and an unfounded premise that says God is more interested in our happiness than our holiness. And saying that God never wants us to have any heartache. That is not true. God in his grace may allow us to experience heartache so as to build us up and to make us to become more conformed to the image of Christ. The reality is that in God's will, there are storms. Let's do a second principle that comes from the text. In God's world, he is sovereign. In God's, word, in God's will, there are storms. In God's world, he is sovereign. Okay, the text. You look at the text and just tell me, how does it portray Jesus Christ? What do we see brought out? His humanity. In what way? How is the humanity of Jesus? Now remember, Mark is writing to a group of people, who the Romans in particular, and he's presenting truth about Jesus so that they can decide, do I want to follow Jesus or not follow Jesus? And so he's presenting Christ as a human. Well, how does he do that in this story? Sleeping. He's sleeping. Does the Lord ever get tired? Yes. What other physical weaknesses, human weaknesses, 
um, I shouldn't say physical, but human, human frailties. What other ones does Jesus experience? He has tiredness in this text. Does he ever get hungry? Do you ever read the passages where Jesus eats? Yes? Okay. Any others? What's that? Okay. Jesus gets angry. His is a righteous anger. Okay. Does Jesus ever... Does Jesus ever get thirsty physically? Yes? No? Does it happen? Does he get thirsty? So yes or no answer? Yes, okay. Does Jesus ever, I'm going to use the word, get stressed? Can you think of a time where he had great stress, great tension? In the Garden of Eden, does he, he sweats what? Yeah, okay. So he has all the human, the human, I'm going to, I'm going to say weaknesses, I have no other term right now, but human, human frailties, except for the one big one. He doesn't sin. He doesn't sin. Okay. So the text is revealing Jesus in his humanity. By the way, one author said something very, very interesting. You might, this might be helpful to you in this study. Um, he described the boats. And in those days, say you have your boat that's going to be your you know, 15, 20-foot boat. And in the back part of the boat, he says it was very common in Galilean boats that they would have at the very back of this boat, they would put their nets and their blankets that they might have because they would fish at frequently. When did they go out fishing? Okay, nighttime was their normal pattern. So they might put blankets there, pillows, or other, other materials. And so at the very back, they would build at the back of the boat like this ledge or this roof over an area of the back of the boat. And it would stead this roof part, would extend out so that if they were caught in a rain or a storm, it was big enough that they could crawl in underneath. The idea is that probably Jesus wasn't like you and me, you know, riding in the car, getting really tired and just kind of doing one of those falling asleep, you know, where your head is bobbing. Chances are Jesus crawled up into that area and went to sleep and even pillowed his head on some of those blankets that were there, which would indicates something about Jesus, that this sleep was premeditated, that it was planned, that even though he knew there was going to be a storm, why did he go asleep? One is, he needed it. The second reason is, it was going to be, it was going to really, you know, he was going to let them go through this for a bit by themselves. He was going to let them experience this. And so uh, rather than just right from the beginning involved in their conversation, he's sound asleep. So Jesus then, the story is showing his humanity. They wake Jesus up in respect slash disrespect, saying to Jesus in their words, you know, Jesus, get up, do something, in other words. And Jesus gets up. What is his command? The words that you read in there that he, that he says to nature. The literal rendering of it is peace be still and stay stilled. It's very clear in the original language. Be calm and continue to be calm. Interesting. Take your Bibles and go with me to Psalm 103. I think I'm going to remember the text right. No, yeah, let's head over there and I'll catch the page. In the book of Psalms, there's a passage that's describing God. And he uses an illustration that is very interesting. It's not 103, it is 107, 107, there we are. 
Psalm 107. I want you to catch these verses. If you were a Jewish man riding in this boat and you were familiar with the Psalms, this Psalm would really pertain to this storm. In Psalm 107, look down at verse 23. They that go down to the, well, get the theme of the whole Psalm back in the beginning. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, his mercy endureth forever. That shows up seven, several times throughout the passage. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, his mercy endureth forever. You know, like verse 21, oh, that man would praise the Lord for his goodness for his wonderful works. So we're down in verse 23. They that go down to the sea in ships that do business in great waters, these see the works of the Lord. Uh, what do you notice about Lord? L-O-R-D. What's that mean? Jehovah, Yahweh. Okay, so he's identifying God, not just some, some entity, but definitely God. Okay, Jehovah God. These see the works of Jehovah God and his wonders in the deep. For he commands and, ra- and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves thereof. They mount up to the heaven. They go down unto the depths. Their soul is melted because of the trouble. The idea of the people are just absolutely overwhelmed by the spectacle of the ocean in its, in its reeling. It goes on. They reel to and fro. They stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. Then they cry unto Jehovah, Yahweh, in their trouble, and he does what? He brings them out of their distresses. He makes what? The storm a calm so that the waves thereof are... Okay. So what is he trying to identify that only God can do? Okay, only God can control the waters like this. Only God is this powerful to take care of absolute control over, the, over nature. Okay, you know that verse. You learned that verse in Sunday school, in, in, in the synagogue class. You learned it in your, in your elementary age. That You learned that passage describing God. Now you're on the boat, and as you're watching Jesus, he stands up, speaks a word, and everything gets calm. By the way, everything gets calm immediately. We aren't going the high winds. Okay, the other day when we had the high winds that were blowing through, and those high winds eventually they taper down. This is high winds, Eurachlodon, Seismos. This is those winds, you know, 70, 80, 90 miles an hour, and they stop, dead stop. And the waves that got you going like this, all of a sudden what's happening? It's glass. It's instantaneous. You remember the verses that talk about this is something only blank can do. Only Jehovah. Only Jehovah. And it rings in your mind right away. Wow. This is amazing. I mean, seriously, it would be amazing to see that we would, if we all of a sudden saw something like this happen, that instantaneous, we would all be shocked. Like, wow, this is, this is phenomenal. And it's a wow moment. It stops them. And they, they see this. And by the way, there's, remember, there's, there's other, other ships out there that have watching this little flotilla that's with them. And they have eyewitnesses. And all of a sudden it stops. And, and the author wants everyone who's reading this story to say and to identify who is Jesus. Who is Jesus? Well, if you read those verses in Psalm, who do you have to conclude Jesus is? He's Jehovah. There's, there, I mean, the evidence is, is bountiful in this text that this is Jehovah. This is Jehovah. That's what, what strikes me is the irony of their response. 
They were afraid of the storm. That's what the text says back in chapter, in, in chapter 4 of Mark. That he says, you're so fearful. But after he arises and the winds and the sea and everything's instantaneous quiet, what is their response in verse 41? They were afraid of the storm. But what does he say in verse 41? They were afraid of him. By the way, the word that they used here now isn't the same word about fearful that he uses in the previous word. This is a, more, a stronger term, a more emphatic term. They are terrified. They are now shaking, not because they think their lives are about to be lost, but who do they think they're standing in front of? Okay. If they put their Bible together, they're standing before Jehovah. And what do they know the Old Testament says? Nobody can see him and... Yeah, they're, they're not going to survive. I mean, seriously. Have you ever pictured yourself coming before God? Walking in before God? And this is me. Me and my, and my wickedness and my weakness. When I picture walking before the Lord, when I have those dreams of entering into heaven, very seldom do I find myself just running right up to him and saying, It's good to see you, Jesus. My typical reaction is, yeah, I'm, I'm glad I'm saved, but he is, wow, he is amazing. He is, he is majestic. He is all-powerful. And they're standing before the God that they have heard about, and they are terrified. What kind of man is this? Who are, who are we associated with? Now, there's a thrill the thrill is he's, one of, he's with them. He's ministering to them. But they are absolutely taken off guard by... No wonder, how does, how does the next boating experience, how does Peter say it? Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. So there, this, this whole passage is amazing because it's teaching us, okay, that Jesus Christ is sovereign. That in his will, there may be storms. Let's make a third conclusion. Okay. In God's word, there is security. In God's word, there is security. Why do we say that? Jesus rebukes them. He says, why are you so fearful? What does that tell you he expected from them? Is he saying the fear was okay? Is that what he's saying? It was okay for you to be fearful? I understand. The storm was big. Yes, no. He's questioning why they were fearful. He isn't excusing their fear. He's saying their fear was, despite the storm, their fear was unwarranted. Why? Why does he rebuke them for being fearful? It was a bad storm, folk. It was, it was life-threatening. Okay. But they, st- but they still don't know. Everything about him. What had he said at the very beginning? Let's go to the other side. Okay? In a veiled, semi-direct way, what is he telling them? We're going to make it to the other side. We're going to get to the other side. We're going to the other side. And they, in their fear of the circumstances, question... Will we get to the other side? But he had already said we're going to get there. Why are you so fearful, O ye of little faith? Okay.
So we grab the whole story and we look at the facts. In God's will, there can be storms. In God's world, he is still sovereign. It doesn't mean he'll keep us from the storms. But in his word, there is security. So let's do a few of those questions just real quickly in your mind that we put at the bottom. How did the disciples both show respect and disrespect? We already highlighted that, the way they spoke. So what words and reactions should we avoid so we too aren't disrespectful of the Lord the next time we have a trial? Maybe we've got to be very, very hesitant on questioning God's leading, God's will, God's care. We can throw out Lord, Master, you know, Savior, but just the title isn't enough. It's do we really believe? Do we believe he is Lord? Do we really trust? Second question goes to the dual question. Do you find it comforting that the disciples were slow in their growth? Anybody here? Do you look at the disciples and say, well, I'm kind of, I'm kind of feel comforted by the fact that they weren't perfect. Anybody feel that way? That it's kind of nice that we hear their blemishes? I do. I do. It's kind of like, okay, so when I'm in my weakness, okay, I'm in good company, there's 12. Now, here's the flip side of it is, do we have more advantages and better knowledge than they did of Jesus Christ? Yeah, we do. What do we know about, about Jesus that they weren't sure about? We know the end of this story, right? We know exactly what they're still questioning. They're still going. They're thinking that this is God, but they still have some questions. They'll, they'll have questions all the way up until the resurrection and his, return, and his coming and revealing himself. They'll still struggle. They'll still stumble. You and I know the resurrection right now. We even have more of their of the word than what they had. We have who's who living within this that helps us. We have the spirit. We don't have the spirit of fear. We have the spirit of God. And so though I can look and say, I'm glad that he reveals this about him, that doesn't excuse me to be as fearful or as faithless as them. I have more knowledge. I have more benefits. And so I'm expected to grow more and not use them as an excuse to say, I don't need to improve. Let's go down to this third, third uh, area. Uh, do you ever question God's care or choices when trials come? And we in our good Christian thinking are going to say, no, not me. Okay, what would be a better way to respond to our trials? We should do this. We should not give in to fear, but live by Live by faith. Okay, how do I do that next time a trial comes? Be careful how I respond. Be careful of the frustrations. Be careful of the doubts. How do I respond? Go back to his will. Okay, am I, do, am I in the will of God? If I am, these storms are not against me, but they are for me. How do I handle this? I go to his word. His word gives security. I will never leave thee. When I am weak, then I am. Okay. And so we grab those words and we hang on to them and we operate by faith. And by faith, we curb how we're going to respond. We watch what we do. We pause before we panic. And we do better than even they did. Live by faith, not by fears. Okay. 
So when we pray, God, help me, strengthen me, help me to be a witness, we pray with boldness, then we walk out of here and live by faith, not by fears. When we tell our kids to serve the Lord, serve the Lord, we live by faith that God's going to take care of our kids. We don't live by fear. When we say, God, help me, help me that I'm holy in my life and we're tempted and somebody gives us pressure and says you're going to be rejected unless you do something wrong, we live by faith, not by fear. Challenging, challenging passage. And Jesus knew fear is a big problem. That's why he talked about it so many times that we need to have faith.